It may not. I remember, for example, when the ex-attorney general, Mr. Robert Kennedy, said that it was conceivable that in 40 years in America, we might have a Negro president. And that sounded like a very emancipated statement, I suppose, to white people. They were not in Harlem when this statement was first heard. And did not hear, and possibly will never hear, the laughter and the bitterness and the scorn in which the statement was greeted. From the point of view of the man in the Harlem barbershop, Bobby Kennedy only got here yesterday. And now he's already on his way to the presidency. We've been here for 400 years, and now he tells us that maybe in 40 years, if you're good, we may let you become president. What is dangerous here is the turning away from, the turning away from anything any white American says. The reason for the political hesitation in spite of the Johnson landslide is the one that's been betrayed by American politicians for so long. And I am I'm a grown man, and perhaps I can be reasoned with. I certainly hope I can be. But I don't know. And neither does Martin Luther King. None of us know how to deal with those other people whom the white world has so long ignored who don't believe anything the white world says and don't entirely believe anything I or Martin say. And one can't blame them. You watch what has happened to them in less than 20 years. It seems to me that the city of New York, for example, this is my last point, We said Negroes there for a very long time. If the city of New York were able, as it has indeed been able, in the last 15 years to reconstruct itself, tear down buildings and raise great new ones, downtown and for money, and has done nothing whatever except build housing projects in the ghetto for the Negroes. And of course, the Negroes hate it. Presently, the property does indeed deteriorate because the children cannot bear it. They want to get out of the ghetto. If the American pretensions were based on a more solid, a more honest assessment of life and of themselves, it would not mean for Negroes, when someone says urban renewal, that Negroes simply are going to be thrown out into the streets, which is what it does mean now. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with society made and ruled by men. If the American Negro had not been president of America, I am convinced that the history of the American labor movement would be much more edifying than it is. It is a terrible thing for an entire people to surrender to the notion that one-ninth of its population is beneath them. And until that moment, until the moment comes, <laughs> when we, the Americans, we, the American people, are able to accept the fact that I have to accept, for example, that my ancestors are both white and black, that on that continent we are trying to forge a new identity for which we need each other, and that I am not a ward of America. I am not an object of missionary charity. I am one of the people who built the country. Until this moment, there is scarcely any hope 
for the American dream. Because the people who are denied participation in it by their very presence will wreck it. And if that happens, it's a very grave moment for the West. Thank you. Happy History Hump Day out there. Welcome back to A History Most Queer. I'm your host, Julian Rushbrook. For those of you returning to this, the second season of this little podcast, I want to say a heartfelt thank you for joining me for another year of learning. If you're brand new here, let me welcome you and tell you a little bit about what this little tiny show is about. This podcast was born due to all of the attempts in the United States, as well as nations all over the globe, that have either historically, or more recently, been erasing or downplaying the historical contributions of LGBTQIA plus people. Human cultures have always had queer people, heroes, and myths. Here I will share just a few of these stories. Some you may be familiar with, whilst others may be surprising and new to you. Either way, the purpose of this podcast is to fill in the educational gap that governments all over the world have created by prescribing what counts as truth. In these days where facts are being censored in favor of fantasies that embrace a false nostalgia, it's even more important to seek out resources that can keep us grounded in reality rather than a fool's paradise. Recently, Ambassador Nikki Haley, one of the Republicans on the campaign trail to be that political party's candidate for the presidential election this November, was involved in a bit of a controversy. When asked a question regarding the racist history of the United States, she responded that this country was not, nor had it ever been, racist. Maybe there were a few oddballs out there, you know, hating people, but the nation as a whole, no, never. This is rather quizzical for me, as not too much earlier before this controversy, she herself, a daughter of immigrants from India, talked about being a brown girl in a black and white world, and how out of place that felt. Maybe she forgot that she said all of this for her first campaign ad. Interspersed through this episode, I will include quotes from the Constitution of the United States of America. These quotes are all there in black and white for anyone to read, and they are examples of racism being baked into the fabric of the nation from its inception. From the Three-Fifths Compromise to the Fugitive Slave Law to the banning of congressional bans on slave trade for up to two decades, these are just a few examples in our founding document. I suppose one could find others, such as how the House of Representatives and Senators structured, those might count, but I thought I would stick with the most blatantly obvious. 
I think it is fitting to have these examples highlighted while delving into this week's topic. While Ambassador Haley and others might claim that racism is just not real, I think it might be a good idea for them to actually, I don't know, pick up a history book, or even, dare I say, a copy of the very constitution that they claim to want to protect. The conservative Cato Institute has them for sale at a pretty low price, and they're lovely little pocket-sized versions. Perhaps they should send this presidential hopeful one. None of this is new. The playbook of oppression is not a very thick tome. Denying the ugly realities of history is step one. If oppression never existed, how on earth can anyone be oppressed now? With that in mind, I thought for the first episode of our second season, we could look to one of my personal heroes, which you've already heard him speak, and that's James Baldwin. The racial reckoning is a term that has been applied to the Black Lives Matter movements and other aligned protest movements that have occurred over the past decade in response to high-profile documented cases of police brutality and of other legal miscarriages of justice. Whether it be the deaths of Trayvon Martin, Ahmaud Arbery, among far too many others, or the shootings of black churchgoers that were a grisly reminder of church bombings and other acts of terrorism from the 1960s. All of these gruesome acts, in conjunction with a major political party now openly embracing racism, has had many conversations, both public and private, occurring to re-examine the concept that, indeed, America is a quote-unquote post-racial society. All these tragedies saw the world of social media begin quoting James Baldwin. Clips of him speaking either in interviews or at universities were, despite being in many cases 60 years old, sadly appropriate for our times. One could actually be fooled into believing that his words were being spoken by a man that was alive in the 21st century, rather than one who had died in the latter half of the 20th. With an election only a few months away, in which the United States may very well have on the ballot a former president whose racist dog whistles are barely even that anymore, I thought perhaps looking at Baldwin's wisdom might help to invigorate all of you out there listening to consider this moment in history and what it is that we can do now to ensure the future happiness of our posterity. The Constitution of the United States of America, Article 1, Section 3. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states, which may be included within this union, according to their respective numbers, which shall be determined by adding to the whole number of free persons including those bound to service for a term of years, and excluding Indians not taxed, three-fifths of all other persons. 
James Arthur Baldwin was born on the 2nd of August, 1924, and we here are just a few months shy of his 100th birthday, as of the time of this recording. He was born in New York City, and it would be in the borough of Harlem that he would grow up. His mother Emma would start raising the young James on her own, never revealing to him who his biological father was. The man who would fill that paternal role was David Baldwin, his stepfather, whom his mother married in 1927. It was from David that he would receive his last name. He would bridge the divide between the days of enslavement and into the civil rights movements of the 60s and 70s. His stepfather's mother was enslaved and even had a child by the man who had owned her. He never knew his stepfather's age, so it may very well be that David was likewise born enslaved. David, of course, had been raised in the South, but would, along with many thousands of other black folks, be a part of the Great Migration, moving from the southern United States to the northern industrial cities, such as Detroit, Chicago, and, of course, New York. He was a preacher. It was his vocation in which a young James Baldwin, would begin to find his voice. In his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, James would delve into his early teenage years in Harlem. The novel was semi-autobiographical, but nonetheless, it pulls back the curtain on his upbringing, and the beginning of a life where speaking in public would become almost as important as his written works. In the novel, the character of John is a stand-in for James himself. There exists a strained relationship between Gabriel and John, such as there was between David and James. The overbearing father and the sensitive son paint a picture of abuse and disapproval from the elder, while the younger reaches out for divine guidance as he grows into the black queer man that he is becoming increasingly aware that he, in fact, is. In his actual life, the young James would begin preaching at the young age of 14. In interviews later in his life, you can clearly see that his speaking pattern, his cadence, are transfixing. Such a skill was acquired in those early years, and I highly recommend just going to YouTube and watching a few of his interviews and talks. I will include some links in the show notes. The film I'm Not Your Negro has uh, many clips of such interviews. It is based on his work, Remember This House, which was unfinished but would be published posthumously. In it, he recalls his memories of Medgar Evers, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, among other civil rights activists who died tragically at young ages. I would also recommend checking out this particular documentary. It does a wonderful job of comparing the struggles of the 1950s through the 70s with events that have been underway in the United States over the past decade. The Baldwins would move a lot during James's childhood. David and Emma would have several children together, and this growing family would become a greater financial burden to the parents. 
David was a day laborer in addition to being a Baptist preacher. The latter did not exactly pay the bills, and the former hardly did either. And so the family struggled financially. They would go from apartment to apartment in Harlem and would regularly need to accept help to keep food on the table. As the eldest brother, James Baldwin would do what he could to help his mother care for his siblings. He would be close with them his whole life. His sister Gloria, for instance, was actually having dinner with him when she learned of the assassination of Malcolm X. It was she that would tell James of this senseless murder. In school, he would meet Aurela Miller. She would be a significant force in his life, introducing him to art and literature. She would take the young teen to see movies and plays. It was because of her that he discovered and learned to love Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. This book would later be heavily criticized by Baldwin when he was an adult. While in middle school, he would turn away from his stepfather's Baptist denomination in favor of the Pentecostal church. It was at the Fireside Pentecostal Assembly that he would have a conversion experience, and for the remainder of his middle and high school life, he would preach there, only stopping when he completed his senior year of high school. In 1942, he would start work, much as his stepfather had as a laborer, working in jobs as varied as meat packing and even waiting tables. Whatever money he could spare went to helping his mother in the raising of his siblings. Baldwin would begin making acquaintances and friendships with a wide variety of people who were famous or would later become so. In the early 1940s, he would meet an inspiring actor named Marlon Brando, who I heard is someone of some renown. He would befriend the author Richard Wright, another writer that I adore. Wright would help Baldwin to get a grant that would help him as he wrote his first novel. The two would have a falling out a few years later, as Baldwin criticized the character of Bigger Williams and others from Wright's novel, Native Son, a book I highly recommend reading. Baldwin would later speak highly of Richard Wright. Now, before I jump too far ahead, we have to talk about the seismic shift in Baldwin's family that happened in July of 1943. His father, David Baldwin, who had been in poor health for some time, died. And this on the same day as his mother was delivering his sister, Paula. Although James Baldwin had sexual and romantic affairs with men and women, he finally embraces his identity as a gay man around this time. It is something that is apparent when reading his works. For instance, in his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, sexual encounters between opposite-sex people often is surrounded with feelings of shame while also being an integral part of being a man. It can point to his own feelings at the time regarding his sexuality, and for that matter, heteronormativity more broadly, and especially as it pertains to black communities in Harlem. So I think right now would be a good time to actually 
stop this episode. And we'll continue with a part two on James Baldwin's life next week. Uh, I just want to say thank you again for returning to History Most Queer. Um, I will, at the end of next episode, give a more extensive list of the various sources that I have used for this telling of James Baldwin's life. Of course, I will include um, a link in the show notes to the clip that I play at the beginning of James Baldwin speaking at Cambridge University. I highly recommend going to look that one up. If you have any complaints, questions, or you just want to get a hold of me and say howdy, um, you can do so by sending an email to historymostqueer at gmail.com or come to visit our Instagram page at historymostqueer. I would really love to hear from you queer history lovers. I think perhaps we can close out this episode by having the man speak for himself. Here's another clip of James Baldwin, and I'll say goodbye to all of you until next week. citizens that the reason that black people are in the streets has to do with the lives they're forced to lead in this country and they're forced to lead these lives by the indifference and the um, apathy and a certain kind of ignorance a very willful ignorance on the part of their co-citizens Everybody knows, no matter what they do not know, that they wouldn't like to be a black man in this country. They know that, and they shut their minds against the rest of it, all the implications of being a black father, or a black woman, or a black son. And all of the implications involved in a human being's endeavor to take care of his wife, to take care of his children, to raise his children to be men and women in the teeth of a structure which is built to deny that I can be a human being or that my child can be. The great question in the country has been all the years that I've been living here and I was born here 43 years ago is what does the Negro want? And this question masks a terrible knowledge. I want exactly what you want. And you know what you want. I want to be left alone. I don't want any of the things that people accuse Negroes of wanting. And I don't hate you. I simply want to be able to raise my children in peace, and arrive at my own maturity in my own way, in peace. I don't want to be defined by you. 
I think that you and I might learn a great deal from each other. If you can overcome the curtain of my color, the curtain of my color is what you use to avoid facing the facts of our common history, the facts of American life. It is easy to call me a Negro or, or a promising black man, but in fact, I'm a man like you. I want to live like you. This country is mine, too. I paid as much for it as you. White means that you are European still. And black means that I'm African. And we both know. We've both been here too long. You can't go back to Ireland or Poland or England. And I can't go back to Africa. And we will live here together or we'll die here together. It is not I am telling you. Time is telling you. You will listen or you will perish. Woo! <laughs>